0: Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer. Today's guest is the one and only Chip Conley. Chip is the founder of Jeu de Vivre Hotels. He's a leader in the hospitality space. He also became senior advisor to the CEO of Airbnb. He is also the founder of Fest 300 and was on the board of Burning Man and currently is the founder of Modern Elder Academy fascinating fascinating guy he's written uh, more than four books he is a profound thought leader and I think redefining what it means to be an elder in today's day and age and I think as we regardless of what your age is as we approach the idea of what it means to age well I think it's really important to think about how we uh, uh, think about aging in modern culture how we think about rites of passage and processes of individuation, and what could it look like to redefine success on our own terms and think about the various phases of aging in a way that keeps us aging gracefully and powerfully and oriented towards a fulfilling life. I had an incredible time uh, speaking with Chip. I think you guys are going to get a ton of value from this conversation. And uh, it's with great pleasure that I get to introduce the one, the only Chip Conley. All right. I am here with Chip Conley. Chip, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show.
1: Thank you, Michael. Um, coming to you from Austin.
0: I, so for context, uh, for, for those listening, I've actually, I had a brief chat with Chip before jumping on because I'm actually headed to Austin this month to consider the possibility of moving there. So I, I had asked about, I, cause I know you were in California for many years as well. Um, real quickly, what would you say is one thing that you absolutely love about Austin, Texas?
1: God, there's, it's the multiplicity of them all. Um, I, I don't know if there's just one, if I had to say one, um, I, I appreciate the wide diversity of people and uh, of industries, you know, this is not a one industry town. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a a big blue city in a a major red state. And that makes it interesting as well too. So I actually, the the diversity of, of people and ways of thinking is great. Um, Yeah. I can, I I can keep going, but yeah.
0: Yeah, no. I'm gonna. I want to get more on this uh, from you uh, offline. But but <laughs> what you said actually is is really interesting because I think you talk about you're referencing a couple things here as it relates to the city. One, the sort of paradox, and two, mm-hmm. uh, the notion of diversity. And I feel yeah. like one of the reasons I was so curious. So I've known you. You know, we met briefly at Burning Man, probably four or five years ago. <laughs> I've known of you for quite some yes. time. Uh- Yeah. But, but the context of diversity is one of the aspects that fascinates me about you in the context Mm. of you to me embody someone who is perpetually redefining themselves. (laughs) And, and, and in the process, you know, um, I think really, at least in my worldview, living life to the fullest, and yeah, and I you. feel like in a, in a culture that privileges oftentimes monoculture and a mm-hmm. lack of diver- diversity, and also one where we've we're, I think we're moving from these archetypes of previous generations of you know mm-hmm. the thirty years in one place, gold watch, <laughs> retire as this sort right. of the thing everyone's supposed to aspire to, you know, Um, the game of
1: life, Remember the game of life, the game of life had only one path to get to the end. There was not, (laughs) you had one singular path that took you to the end.
0: Exactly. What, so how do you shake that up? Because I know one of your, one of your current focuses, which is, which is actually what I find highly compelling uh, because I'm very fascinated by stages of life and archetypes as it relates Mm -hmm. to rites Mm -hmm. of passage. And you're focusing on this notion of a modern elder. What does yeah. that, what does a modern elder mean to you? Like, how do you, how do you look at the notion of what it means to be an elder in today's culture with things shifting so quickly?
1: Sure. Let me give you a little background on how I even came to having this interest. So <clears throat> I you know spent 24 years running a, a boutique hotel company that I started called Joie de Vivre, based in San Francisco. And, um, it, you know, became pretty large, 52 hotels. And but in the Great Recession, I sold it, and I said, "Listen, I, I sold it at the bottom of the market. I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore." I was fifty years old, and having not a midlife crisis, but like a midlife calling. There was a calling, and I was, but but it had a really bad reception. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to hear the calling. I wasn't sure what it was, but and then I watched the movie The Intern. At some point around this time, it might have been a little, a couple of couple years later, actually. And I watched Robert De Niro say in the movie, um, musicians don't retire, they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. Mm. And I knew I had music inside of me, I just didn't know who to share it with. And I didn't really know that that is in some ways what a a modern elder or an elder does. Um, So I was tapped on the shoulder, figuratively speaking, by the three founders of Airbnb about eight years ago, when they were a small tech startup in San Francisco, and they said, hey, you, you know... We want you to come in and and be Brian, the CEO, co-founder and CEO's in-house mentor, but also the head of global hospitality and strategy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do a bunch of other things too. And so I joined, but I had no clue when I was joining that I was going to be twice the age of the average employee. Mm. And that was true. I was 52 at the time and the average age was 26. And I thought I was supposed to be the one dispensing wisdom. And what I felt more often was like I was the dumbest person in the room because I'd never worked in a tech company before. I didn't understand the lingo. And, and so they started calling me the modern elder. And I initially I said, fuck you. I'm not, I'm not elderly. But there's a big difference between elderly and elder. So elderly is the maybe the last five or 10 years of your life. It's usually an era of your life where you're becoming more and more dependent on others, just like a child is. Um, so it's like the classic sort of um, virtuous circle. Um, But being an elder is a relative term. You could be 40 and an elder if you're surrounded by 25-year-olds. In my case, I was 52, surrounded by 26-year-olds. I was the elder. But I was a modern elder, according to them, because I was as curious as I was wise. And so the curiosity opened up possibility and the wisdom distilled down what was essential. And that combination of having that yin-yang curiosity and wisdom and the perfect alchemy, knowing when to up the dosage of one versus the other was what I came to realize was my the magic I could offer for the four years I was full time there and then for three and a half, almost four years as an advisor to them. And so a modern elder, to my mind, is different than the traditional elder. The traditional elder of the past was was dispensing wisdom. Uh, was often because in many ways, we lived in back then, you, if you're an indigenous culture, particularly, it was a, it was a farming agriculture or a hunting and gathering culture. And you lear- the kinds of things you learned, I mean, if you, had far- if you had land wisdom and you were a gentleman farmer at 75 or 80 telling your grandkids you know, about the farmer's almanac and you know, what you can smell in terms of the weather coming three days from now, you know, these are things you don't learn at age 15 or you don't know at age 15. But then we moved into the industrial era and then into the tech era. And of course, elders sort of fell out of favor. And, um, and we shunted them off to, you know, age apartheid retirement homes. And, um, and there's a lot of people still trying to be that kind of elder who's revered from the past and just dispensing the wisdom. And that's what we call OK Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> because that kind of elder isn't, isn't open to understanding the context for how to share their wisdom. Nor are they often imagining they could learn as much from that younger person as, they could, as you could from them. So long story short is um, the traditional elder was about reverence. The modern elder is about relevance. And relevance requires curiosity, requires understanding context and, 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 and not being the, the know-it-all. Because actually, frankly, being the know-it-all is, is not, that's a smarty pants, not the wisest person in the room.
0: I think that's fascinating. I, I I very much resonate with the idea of curiosity because I feel like the people that I know that have aged regardless of, of the stage of life that they are in, but yeah. those that um, I think age the the, the most gracefully uh, mm-hmm. are the yeah. are the most curious humans I know and because they're always yeah. seeing the world with fresh eyes.
1: You know, there's a woman, there's an executive recruiter who said to me uh, about a year and a half ago, when my book Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder came out, She said, you're going to get a lot of questions from people who are in their 50s (laughs) saying, how do I get a job in a a very ageist world? And she said, that that here's the advice you need to give to them. Um, If you show up with curiosity and a passionate engagement with life, people will not notice your wrinkles. They'll notice your energy. Mm. And that energy is what they'll see. And you will seem ageless or timeless. And so you're right. Curiosity is the elixir of life. I think the first modern elder was a guy named Peter Drucker, famous management theorist who lived to age 95, wrote two-thirds of his 40 books after the age of 65. Um, So yeah, I think that, you know, uh, here's a math exercise. Michael, how how old are you?
0: I just, uh, on the 30th of August, which is two days ago, turned 44. So I've officially entered midlife.
1: You're a baby. Um, (laughs) Okay. And so you're, you're, so midlife, in my opinion, midlife goes 35 to 75, but you're right. Mid forties, actually mid forties are rough period. 40, 45 to 50 is sort of the roughest. So, but you're 44. How, how long do you think you'll live? Like what, at what point do you think you'll expire?
0: You know, it's a great question. I would say, uh, so, my, my hope is that, and I thought I actually reflected on this two days ago, my hope is that I'm halfway through life. So my hope is that if I'm healthy, uh, and I think, you know, given the advent mm-hmm. of some of our technology and, 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 and medical, you know, sort of evolution, my hope is that I have a high quality of life up into my late 80s.
1: Okay, let's say you live to 88. So you mm-hmm. so you, you, you double it. Yep. I like to think of math, a new kind of math, which is adult math, which means that actually your age starts at age 18. So hmm. basically you have, at this point, 26 years behind you, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. um, since since age 18. And you have 44 years ahead of you. So if you do, basically, I'll, well, I'll do a quick math exercise here. So if you have um, a total of 70 years of adulthood, and you are 26 years of the way through. So you're basically, well, the math's pretty clear. You're, only, you're barely, you're just a little over a third of the way through your adult life. Mm. Now, that is a really interesting way to think of life, is to realize, wow, Michael has two thirds of his adult life still ahead of him. He, of course he can move to Austin. Of course, <laughs> yes. Of course he can do X, Y, or Z. And, and what we need to do, there's a Stanford psychologist named Carol Dweck, and she's fascinating, and um, mm-hmm. her theories on mindset. It's really about um, yet, adding the word yet. I have not, you know, learned Spanish yet. Um, I don't know how to surf yet. Both of those I now know. I'm, I learned how to surf and I'm learning Spanish in my late 50s. So um, I think what's really helpful for people to understand is the growth mindset is of the, It helps you to get to a place where you see that winning in life is learning. It, winning in life is not winning. <laughs> if, if you get fixated with winning over time, you get a fixed mindset. And you only focus on the things that you think you can win, which as you get older, it seems like a smaller and smaller sandbox. Mm. So curiosity allows you to try things that you may not do very well. So it's a, it, it's a much longer subject. It's part of what we teach at the Modern Elder Academy is we really help, keep, help people to understand how to create a growth mindset in midlife and beyond. And, and that's a new phenomenon because, frankly, if we're going to live longer, power seems to be moving younger in a digital society. It, certainly, it was at Airbnb. And the world is changing faster. Those three variables, living longer, power moving younger, the world changing faster, has got a lot of people in midlife bewildered. And, and yeah. feeling irrelevant.
0: Yes, I want to. I want to tap into that a bit because one of the things that you've talked about in some of the other shows I've listened to in my research for this show is the absence of processes of individuation in midlife that kind of, I think, effectively demarcate. So traditionally, processes of individuation would demarcate particular phases of life, right? Like mm-hmm, youth, mm-hmm. when an elder would recognize a youth, it was time to move them from adolescence into adulthood mm-hmm. uh, or from boyhood into manhood. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes there would be a rigorous and sometimes arduous uh, challenge that yeah. would uh, be uh, shepherd that youth through into adulthood. And you know we've, we talk at times about the midlife crisis, um, which is often uh, a, a crisis uh, of, of spirit that happens around this phase of life. And in part, I think some of these crises that we're facing, both individually, and I, I believe that the individual is a, a microcosm of the macrocosm we're seeing out in the world, um, we're seeing people not really know how to effectively adapt to our rapidly changing world. So How do you look at this notion of, because I know this is something you're consciously Mm -hmm. sort of creating, how do you look at the processes of individuation in midlife and how we can more effectively navigate what is a seemingly very you know Terence McKenna says that actually the world has changed more since 1992 than it did in the previous 1000 years. In yeah. other words we're we're moving kind of that in that in a in a new reification of time that is exponential. So yeah. given that kind of co- context which you shared a bit about which is largely youth driven as it relates to technology for sure mm-hmm. how does one uh, as they approach middle age or maybe some of the folks that are listening that are in middle age think about um, effective rites of passage or ways to navigate effectively um, through that phase of life?
1: Yeah, so Arnold van Gennep is well known as the, uh, the guy who created rites of passage, um, mm. create, created in terms of coining it. Um, he studied indigenous societies. And what he saw pretty much, this is about 110 years ago, what he saw consistently was there were three phases. There was the, the ending phase. The ending of that part of your era, so think of the the kid going through puberty and then going out into the wilderness on their own, so you actually leave the family, so it's the end of so the early childhood uh you know going up to puberty, and then you go into the wilderness for three weeks on your own, having to figure out how to survive um and along the way the the village elders do some things, little tricks on you just to and then you come back and that's the middle piece. So there's the, the ending of an era. Then there's the liminal phase or what's known as the transition phase, also known as the messy middle. And then on the other side of that, you come back into society with an introduction as a new person. And in this case, this kid coming back as a young, young adult, um, because frankly, in an indigenous society at age 14, you're probably an adult. Uh, We did not in the United States or in Western society recognize prior to 1904 that adolescence, um, which is your teen years, basically, you know, puberty is when adolescence starts and it goes till 18. We didn't see that as a period of childhood still until 1904. We saw that as adulthood started at age 13 or 14, whenever puberty started for you or 12 And that's why people worked in the mines. That's why they got married. That's why they had kids before they were 18. We didn't see that adolescence was a period of major hormonal, emotional, and physical changes in the person. And we needed to create rites of passage. That's about the time when we created junior high schools, Hmm. public junior high schools and high schools in the United States, so that we could actually have a prep school, a training school for people to become adults. So, in fact, isn't it interesting that graduation from high school is a commencement address and a commencement ceremony. You're commencing something. So in the last 20 years, so that was 1904, adolescence got created. In the last 20 years, in the social sciences, but not in the mainstream, there's a new word that has actually gotten, gotten some currency and it's called middle essence. Mm-hmm. Middle essence is the bookend to adolescence. So adolescence is when you in the prep stage to adulthood Middle essence is the ending of adulthood uh, as you prepare for elderhood, not elderly, but elderhood. And so the thing is we don't have much in the way of our, our lesson, our brand around midlife is it's a crisis. Um, Our perspective about aging is it's a bad thing. Um, Our societal narrative about this era around your 40s, 50s, and 60s is that it's, it's a rough period. Um, if you can survive your midlife crisis, you, have look, you look forward to decrepitude and disease and death. And, so, and yet middle essence, which is often for people in around 45 to 55, for women it's menopause, for men it's called andropause. You're going through hormonal and emotional and physical changes. But we have nothing in the way of society-sanctioned Rites of passage, rituals, or anything that gives you a sense that you're actually going through a fundamental ch- shift, both physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. I like to think, you know, I'm a big fan of Carl Jung, the psychologist, and um, I, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing him, but this is also sort of my own idea as well. I do believe that, that adolescence to adolescence are the bookends of ego. And ego is the form of individuation. You use the word. I I would not normally use that word in a podcast because it's a little intellectual and academic. But individuation is what we do as children. Our ego helps set us apart, helps give us agency. And then we take it too far. And we take it too far over, you know, through puberty and through adolescence and through adulthood. And then there's a point around 45 to 55 when it starts to shift again. And we have no roadmap, nor any schools or tools to help people understand what the hell's going on, uh, and therefore people get disoriented, and they—that's when the crisis comes along, and they go and buy a Ferrari and, and date their next-door neighbor, um, and, and you know, on the side. And so there's an element of we need to help people through this period um, for all, for all kinds of reasons. Number one is the suicide rate for people 45 to 65 has actually gone up by 50% in the last 20 years. Okay, that's number one. It's gone up, frankly, for the whole society, but much more for mid- mid-lifers, um, and, and so that's one thing. Number two is we, Peter Drucker, who I mentioned earlier, this uh, you know one of the first modern elders, I, in my opinion, he coined the term 61 years ago, knowledge worker. He said the, the world would be ruled by knowledge workers in the future, and he was right. 61 years later, seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world are tech companies. Knowledge is king and queen. And yet, all the knowledge of the world is on this damn little iPhone. All I have to do is dial up Google and I, I I've got my any knowledge I want. What's really valuable today is wisdom because it's actually scarce. And it's wisdom is not something only older people have. You can cultivate it at any age. And I know lots of 30-year-olds who are wiser than a 70-year-old. But What I think we're realizing as we move into the era of artificial intelligence is that there are a collection of human qualities that we can embody that artificial intelligence probably in the next 10 years will not. Maybe beyond there it will, but for the next 10 or 15 years, intuition, um, having a conscience, um, ethics, uh, pattern recognition when it comes to human human emotions – Um, creativity. Uh, These are the kinds of things that actually you get better with over time. Emotional intelligence is something that grows with time for on average. Um, IQ does not. So long story short is to create an environment where people can go through their rites of passage collectively with another group of people. That's what we do at MEA is, you know, we call it a midlife wisdom school, Uh, that that is dedicated to not lifelong learning, but long life learning. Mm. And the difference is lifelong learning is the same at 35 or 65. If you're learning Fortran engineering coding language, there's no way it's taught differently to a 35-year-old or a 65-year-old. Long life learning is dedicated to the idea that you're going to live a life as deep and meaningful as it is long. And it takes into account life stages, Takes into account the, the nature of your psychology and what's important to you over time is evolving. Um, and it helps you to cultivate and harvest your wisdom and then look at how you repurpose it in society. Mm. That's a mouthful, I'm sure. I'm sorry I'm going on so long, but you not know, at all. Not at I'm, all.
0: I, I love it.
1: Uh, yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> no, so one what, what of the things I want to take from what you just shared, which is that notion of ego and how it sort of shifts. I, I know I've, I've heard in some of your other work. You actually draw, I think, a fascinating distinction, um, which I thought was really codified beautifully when you said, I think, and, and forgive me, and you can clarify mm-hmm. if I if I misquote, but <clears throat> something to the effect of the, that first half of life, mm-hmm. which you know, for you, you had your you know, you're building you had a, this hugely successful hotel mm-hmm. chain, you know, you're driven, you're are <laughs> I imagine, you are the, you're the face of the company, you know, I think That's as you correct. talked about yep. it, the sage on stage, mm-hmm. uh, and and. For many of us, I, I resonate with that as well. For me, was when I was building Global Citizen. It was very much, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was uh, you're fed by that identity, mm-hmm. people For you know, sure. in, the, in the culture which we grow up in, which oftentimes, at least in New York City, where I lived at the time, the first question, less in California, but in New York, yeah. definitely, what do you do is the first question, and right. your identity is is based on your work. Uh, but that notion of ego, it's about being interesting, and then you say, in the second chapter of life it 's about moving into being interested and what I loved about that yeah. is and and i 'll use a personal example, which may not mm-hmm. fit neatly into how you how you view this, but one of the things that i 've personally uh, been inquiry around is this notion of how how does one age gracefully mm. and i I oftentimes you know, I, I shared with you briefly, I, I had, I've had the good fortune of sitting in some incredibly rarefied circles with indigenous elders. Mm. And one of the things that I've noticed is there seems to be a, a period in which, you know, when we're young, we're very much trying to <clears throat> prove ourselves and prove, prove our worthiness. And yeah. we have a very prescriptive worldview around what at least in our mind is mm-hmm. the right way to do something and what 's not the right way to do something right and in my experience there 's a beautiful movie that 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 called the straight story i don 't know if you 've ever seen this it's mm-hmm. actually. It's a, it's, a, it's a true story of a man who is diagnosed with cancer and he goes on it. He takes a tractor a thousand miles because it's the only vehicle he has to go see his brother from Iowa to Wisconsin.
1: I've heard about this movie. Yeah, you got to watch a, it, Chip. It's a documentary, correct? It's,
0: a, it's not a documentary. Oh, it's actually okay. a narrative film, but based oh. on a true story. Okay, got it. And what I loved both in the indigenous circles I sit in and what yeah. I loved about this film was that... In an effectively individuated an elder, in my experience, they often lead by sharing stories. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point around that EQ, that evolution of emotional intelligence, it isn't the intellectual, like, you need to do this, 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 and this, analytical. It's the, right. I'm listening to you. I'm listening to your body language. I'm listening mm-hmm. to your tone. I'm listening to the words behind the words. And I'm going to share a story. And in that story or parable, there's maybe a way for you to find your way, for Mm -hmm. your curiosity to meet the road of this narrative in Mm -hmm. such a beautiful way that you come to the understanding yourself. and and i've i've always loved that and it's something i'm just recently sort of distilling down about some of the elders that i've respected but i love this notion of leading with story and sort of curiosity and i love how you shared earlier that you're learning spanish and you know for <coughs> me at least that notion of being interested in life and that notion of of wisdom being in some ways the the sharing from a place of listening as mm-hmm. opposed to the proving from a place of, of yeah. ego is yeah. one of the things that I'm, I'm playing with as a distillation. But, I, but I'd, love, I'd love your thoughts of what are some, some of the characteristics of an effectively individuated uh, elder as, mm-hmm. as you think about mm-hmm. like, how one can move in their identity, because I think a lot mm-hmm. of this is a crisis of identity, trying to apply the, the, mm-hmm. the clothes of youth into yeah. the, the aspect of elderhood that just doesn't fit any longer.
1: As, you, as Carl Jung said, you can't live the afternoon of your life based upon the rules of the morning. Uh, yeah. Because by the afternoon, there will be a lie. Uh, it, it's, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to unpack here. Number one is I think the first half of your life is about accumulating and the second half of your life is about editing. Mm. And I, I, I think if you, if you have that point of view, it helps to understand what's going on here. Um, Think about it, you know, you accumulate knowledge, and you accumulate friends, and you accumulate um, identities, and responsibilities, and jobs, and people you date, and then maybe children, and by the time you get to 44, (laughs) you often are under siege with how much baggage you're carrying, the mindsets, the identities, the responsibilities, And this is why in the U-curve of happiness, which is very well documented in social science, it's a little uh, debated, but generally it's considered pretty accurate. 45 to 50 is the roughest era on average for people because it's the period of time. And actually, interestingly, just an aside, each decade after that, you get happier. You're happier in your 80s than your 70s for women Men, 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 and women. Seventies versus sixties. Sixties versus fifties, and fifties versus forties. Forty. About forty-seven is the low point. So look what you have to look forward to. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm going to ask for the antidote to that yeah. after this. Yes.
1: You know, uh, your mileage may vary. Um, so I think the thing that's interesting here is what goes on at that moment of people's lives, and again, it varies for a variety of different ways and it's going to vary a lot more for millennials because of the fact that they are they're not living the three-stage life you learn then you earn then you retire Um, but the reason it's interesting is because what happens around midlife is you need to do the great midlife edit you've accumulated and if you're running the midlife marathon which I think is 35 to 75 that's a lot that's 40 years to be carrying a lot of baggage so there's a point at which you actually have to say this no longer serves me I need to let go of this, um, whether it's your ego whether it is a, a friend from college that just has a completely different worldview and is just sort of an asshole and you just don't want to actually be in their life anymore um, whether it is a way of being and habits that you grew up with that aren't serving you anymore whether it's the voice in your head of your mother all of these things are the things that need to be that need to be purged and the process of purging that is not something that, yes, you have therapy. Yes, you can go to a personal growth workshop at Esalen. And I was on the board of Esalen for eight years and I've taught a lot of workshops there. So these are all good things. Um, but generally speaking, it's a, you know, it's a DIY, you know do-it-yourself exercise. If you're, if you're lucky, you have friends who support you. If you're lucky and you have money, you might have a coach. Um, but generally speaking, especially if you're a man, you don't have the society – crucible the social crucible of uh, being vulnerable and letting other guys who are good friends of yours help you with what you're going through and and this is why you know the suicide rate for men is so substantially higher than for women um so having said all that what does that mean so it means that you go into the second half of your life a little bit freer a little bit emptier uh and This is one of the things I had to learn the hard way at Airbnb. There were four stages to me becoming a modern elder. I had to evolve, which means edit. I had to let go of a bunch of stuff. Mm. Um, I was no longer CEO. So I was like, okay, right size that ego. (laughs) Um, No longer the sage on the stage. Now the guide on the side. A few other things. And once I sort of had actually edited down some things, then I had space to learn. And I think a modern elder is all about learning. And that's where the curiosity comes in. So evolve, learn. Those are the two of the the four that are the hardest ones. And then collaborate, which in any kind of environment, a collaboration environment, if you're an elder, can be really positive. Because not only are you emotionally intelligent and probably pretty intuitive about other people in terms of where they are in their life, you may not be seen as competition at, at Airbnb. No one thought I was going after their job other than Brian in the early days as the CEO. I was like, <laughs> who's you know, he wanted he wanted me to come in, but he's like, oh, you know, let's, let's keep you in the background. Um, mm-hmm. but but he is actually confident enough. So he was he was fine having me there. And so collaboration is a really important skill in you know, because you know, life is a team sport, company you work in in companies and organizations is a team sport. Um, and yet, the, if power is moving to younger people who don't have a lot of organizational savvy or even emotional intelligence to know how to navigate a, t- a team, um, then having some older people who are elders on the team help. And then finally, the last phase that I talk about in my book, Wisdom at Work, is counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the one-on-one you know, sort of mentor-mentee experience, which to me is the problem for a lot of boomers or, or you know, older people is instead of going steps one, two, and three first, and then you do the counsel, they go straight to number four. They go straight to counsel and say, well, let me tell you how the world works. And then they tell you a 20-minute story about their life. And then they try to apply it to today with no context, no curiosity, no openness to listening and hearing what what this person really needs. They just want to hear themselves talk. And that's when we get OK Boomer. And so I think that, you know, we have five generations in the workplace for the first time. Uh, and that gives us an opportunity to create an intergenerational potluck like we've never seen before.
0: Beautifully said. To that, in, to that point around intergenerational potluck, one of the things that, that I'm curious to get your perspective on is I feel like as people, uh, one of the aspects of the aging process if people don't have a growth oriented, you mentioned Zwick earlier, mindset as it relates to relationships, right? Like Mm -hmm. Harvard, which is now some people say is is flawed because it was a study of all men, but Harvard, you know, greatest longitudinal study of its kind showed that the greatest corollary to long-term health and happiness, quality of long-term relationships. uh, but the notion of relating, the, the, the notion of even societal structures, I mean, right now we're recording amidst the corona pandemic, a lot of people moving from large city, you know, there's a lot of migration, a lot of shifting jobs, like the, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot less, quote unquote, stability, I would say, in this, yeah. in this current generation. And I think there's a beauty to that in terms of the opportunities for, if you do have that growth oriented mindset for new opportunities, new relationships, et et cetera, if you have a growth oriented mindset, but I've seen with, with some of, I've, I've seen an interesting group of folks not to make it, uh, you know, like not to make it binary, but there are some, I think who, who are attached to friendships from youth and loyalty, Mm -hmm. even if they don't serve and I think others who see relationships with a growth-oriented mindset. And it's not to make this hugely cultural, and I think there's many aspects around America that I don't love in terms of its current uh, embodiment. But one thing I've always found that I love about this country when I travel to others is there's in other places, there's less of an orientation around getting to know new people uh, and an excitement around that. And for me, my great passion is community. And my great passion is meeting wonderful, incredible people. And I hope to do that, God willing, throughout life. Um, But how do you think about community? Because one of the things that Mm -hmm. was so powerful for me and so actually formative is when I did go to Sri Lanka, I was was 19 at the time, was traditionally there was no word for privacy and there's no word for possession. Mm -hmm. So literally, you existed in a relationship to your community. And if I fell out of balance, or if you, Chip, fell out of balance, it was the role of the whole community to bring you back into balance because we were you. And I think existentially, that's in some ways what Corona is teaching us, right? The Mm -hmm. fallacy of individual liberty is just that we are inherently interdependent. And I think many people, like you said earlier, get checked into the nursing home. we don't really have a solution for what to effectively do in an individual centered society with people as they quote unquote age out. So how can we or what do you how do you think Mm -hmm. about, I suppose, community in the process of aging and creating more and more nourishing relationships Mm -hmm. in different phases of life?
1: So Phil Pizzo um, used to run the medical center medical center at Stanford, and then he uh, a few years ago created the Distinguished Careers Institute at Stanford, mm-hmm. which is a program where people often in their 50s, mostly in their 50s, sometimes 60s, sometimes 40s, but 50s is the center of maybe fifty late 50s. People come after having had a successful career, but they want to figure out what to do next. So it's sort of like MEA, although we're You know, we're much larger and we're a one week program. This is a year long program that's sort of like, you know, the Mercedes Benz, much more expensive, etc. So Phil basically based upon his research showed that the three things that people really need later in life um, are purpose, wellness and community. And in many ways, it has to do with retirement, if you think about it. A lot of people think, okay, retirement, yeah, you know, is great because I'm going to live longer as a result. No, actually, you lose two years when you retire. That studies have shown your morbidity rate actually accelerates. You're, you're going to die faster when you quit work. Why is that? Number one is you lose purpose. Number two is you lose the discipline, discipline and structure that helped you do things, including your, your personal wellness. And number three, you lose community because that's the collection of people that you have. So purpose, wellness, community. So what I find interesting in the United States is the way we define wellness is personal wellness. We do not speak of social wellness. Social wellness to me is wellness and community, you know, the intersection, the Venn diagram of wellness and community. The word Illness starts with an I, the word wellness starts with a we, interestingly. And I think that one of the things we have to start getting savvier about as humans and in the United States um, is how does community support us in our our personal and social wellness? Personal wellness is, when we think of that, we tend to think of okay, I go to the gym, (laughs) Um, I meditate, I go to yoga. Personal, well, it's how I eat. Um, we don't really think of it in the context of the opposite of loneliness. It's how engaged I feel with my friends or how engaged I feel in my community, in giving back to my community, being generative. Uh, as Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist, talked about, uh, you know, he says that's the, the number one thing, the number one dilemma in the the mid to later adulthood is generativity versus stagnation so generativity is how do you generate especially to other generations and people beyond yourself so so I think the idea of community is a really fascinating one um I've had whether it's being on the board of Burning Man on the board of Esalen being at 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 Airbnb starting a festival website called Fest 300 focused on community festivals or more recently, MEA, um, we are now creating something called MEA Regenerative Communities. And the whole point, and, and we haven't talked about it publicly, there's no website for it yet, but let me just tell you what it's like. Please. So, so instead of having a golf course <laughs> as the magnet for a community, which is how we've sort of thought of communities often for people 45 and up, is there's a golf course, then there's a bunch of ranch-style homes around the golf course, there's a clubhouse, and then there's a lot of drinking and <laughs> <laughs> a lot of loneliness um, and occasionally key parties when, you know, you want to get rid of your spouse and for the night, but we won't go there. Um, so long story short is, it's a really dislocated uh, kind of experience. So based upon our now two and a half years experience at MEA, we like, God, we've had 750 uh, alums from 24 countries, stunningly, active and engaged alum community around the world. What if we were actually to to create these communities where the the center, the the nucleus was not a golf course, it was a midlife wisdom school, in our case, calling it the Modern Elder Academy. Around that would be um, a, a set of homes that people could live in as their primary home or secondary home and regenerative agriculture. So regenerative agriculture is a form of agriculture that actually is very focused on giving back to the land and, and, and actually uh, changing your crops you know, regularly so that you, know, you don't get a mono-ag ag kind of environment, which is not necessarily good for the crops, um, nor good for nutrients for organic farming and for you know, what we eat. So imagine a community that's built around a wisdom school and a farm, All, both are meant to regenerate Um, But also then in places around the U.S. and the world where that community actually connects with the indigenous culture wherever it is. That's what we do in Baja, in southern Baja where we're located. But we're looking at places now where we could do that that have sort of an indigenous culture, whether it's Santa Fe, New Mexico or the hill country of Austin here uh, where I'm living. Um, So that's a new form of community. So it's a form of community. It's not exclusively oriented toward just older people. You could actually have families. In fact, you could have like a green school in Bali idea applied to having a farm, basically farm schooling um, for people, you know, in their in elementary school um, before people would go off to maybe a public or private junior high school um, in in the broader community. So. I think community is essential, and I think it's a word that is used a lot, especially in the online world, but there's an enormous difference between IRL and URL. URL is the online world, and we are doing that right now, and the problem with the URL communities, although it it has so much greater potential to scale, and it has so much greater potential to find people that you wouldn't have found otherwise, Um, and for all those reasons, it's great, but... What I learned when I studied the history of festivals over thousands of years, and then why in the last 15 years, festival culture has been doubling every, you know. So whether it's transformational festivals like Burning Man or music or or arts festivals or religious pilgrimages or film festivals or food festivals, they're all growing. They were, the last three or four years, they have been less so. And of course, during COVID, not at all. What was going on? And I think that at the heart of it was the more digital we get, the more ritual we need.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The more digital we get, the more ritual we need. And what does that mean? It means that doing this in an URL format is not the same as IRL in real life. When we're in real life, there's more opportunity for serendipity, spontaneity, epiphany, um, the three sisters of magic. Um, serendipity is or uh, wait. I forgot certain so anybody's synchronicity and, and epiphany, maybe there's there's another one there too, but that ability for us to be face to face and let our mirror mirror neurons in our brain our mirror neurons dance together. they don't dance together when I'm staring at a camera here and then I'm looking at you down here and then I'm going back and forth I, I'm all I'm dancing with is <laughs> your face. And the camera, yeah. and, and, and it's not the same. And yeah. so long story short is I think that community is going to be more important uh, in the future because I think one of the things we're also seeing in the United States with the divisive culture that's sort of prevalent these days is people get like – they just want to tune out the, the monoculture the, mm-hmm. and they just sort of want to – and COVID has got, made this happen too. So like they want to go small. Small is beautiful. And so that means you are going away to be small, but not just your own family. And I think the idea of intentional communities, but not quite as hippy-dippy as they were in the 70s, is absolutely, especially for aging people, for people 50 and older, you're not going to go live, you don't want to live in a nursing home if you, if, you, if you can help it. And living in an adult active community, active adult community and retirement community doesn't sound as good it's not what it's it's right for your parents maybe maybe not for you so uh, my friends ben and vanessa said to me a few years ago we should create something called retirement not retirement and retirement is how do we how do how do we help teach people how to create their own intentional community in a way that that can work and i I think there's probably a book in that
0: i i look forward to reading that book i feel (laughs) like especially with the you know the regenerative um Analogy. I feel, yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm sure, you know, kiss the ground, but, uh, I've been, I've been really interested in the United States. Actually, if you fly from New York to LA, you're looking over pr- principally monocultural crops and yeah. without, this is for another podcast, but, uh, you know, I've been fascinated by the soil and our microbiome and actually the, the depth of diversity as it relates to our personal health and collective mm-hmm. health, mm-hmm. and um, as in some ways, a metaphor for community. And I think that idea of actually taking it off the golf course and creating a regenerative <laughs> (laughs) especially in this context where we realize, you know, food, food security um, Mm -hmm. is so pivotal. And I love the idea. And if I can be helpful, by the way, I'd love to be as it relates to the indigenous um, connections, because that's actually what I studied. And it's and I I actually like to use that as a transition, because although it's a little bit tangential, you did reference it. And it is something I really wanted to just personally, I was I wanted to talk about because we had first met in person at Burning Man. I know you had been on the board and I know that for a year, I think you did more than 30 festivals. And when you were, you were launching uh, fest 300, correct yep. me if I, if I'm incorrect. 30,
1: 36 festivals in 20 countries in one year. Yeah,
0: exactly. So <laughs> that to me is like, all right, now that is curiosity. That is yeah. stepping into a new chapter mm-hmm. of life. What was that just, you know, t- what, what, what was that year like for, I mean, obviously that's a huge question, but what were, were there learnings? Were there excitements? Because I think oh to, your, to your point, like, I think people also yearn for that ecstasies, right? Traditionally yeah. it was yeah, ritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and festival, I think, embodies it now. What was it like for you?
1: Let me show you that. I'm gonna show you on my wall just a little. First of all, here's a piece of art that I love. But uh, over on this wall, yes. on there on the um I don't know, right or left-hand side, there's a whirling dervish and then there's burning man. Yes. Uh, from the sky. So let me explain that for a minute. <laughs> because um that that right there describes that year um it started in the end of 2012 and it went to this, the fall of 2013 mm. um the Burning Man was toward the end um and uh, going to the Whirling Dervish Festival uh in in Konya Turkey was near the start why did I do this so I was I'd been going to Burning Man for 20 years at that point I was a founding board member of for the burning man uh, nonprofit board and just found it fascinating just you know from a I, I of course i loved it personally but i actually was as in my sort of cultural anthropologist sociologist mind which I, I didn't ever study that but i just that's how my mind works i just was really intrigued by it and um what i was also curious about from a sort of an entrepreneurial perspective is like why is it that there's no website that could actually match me to the best festivals in the world that fit my personality or fit my interests, et cetera. Um, And so I decided to go and check them out. And I, so it varied from everything from the whirling dervish festival, which is, God, it's been happening ever since Rumi died 750 years ago. Um, Rumi was the first, Rumi the poet was the first whirling dervish in the world. Uh, And it was his way to, Find ecstasy, find that transcendent experience because his his mentor uh, Shams uh, had been killed by the by the local townspeople because they thought he was a bad influence on Rumi. Um, Such a fascinating experience. It's you know you go to you think okay well I you know go to a whirling dervish experience you're gonna be surrounded by people from. Venice Beach and Boulder and Mill Valley or something like that. No, it was like Bambushka's on buses from Istanbul who all love Rumi coming there. And I was like one of the only uh, Americans at this, this festival. It was just phenomenal. It was a cultural experience. It was crazy. Um, on the other end, you know, there's the Burning Man, which has its thing. But I went to Maha Mela, a hundred million people at a festival over 55 days. Um, you know, the, the peak day, uh, the peak bathing day in, in, where the two Ganges rivers come together, uh, this was in two thir- t- 2013. So it was in Allahabad. Um, it's like 35 million people going and bathing together, which is, you know, not exactly hygienic. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I actually had a cut on my leg and it, it, it went septic as a result of that. But I loved that. Um, I loved going to Il Palio, um, in Siena, which is a, it's a, it's like, it's, if you think of like these terrible Renaissance fairs that are in sort of rural and suburban areas around America in the summers, typically not the summer, obviously, they all started based upon Il Palio, which is sort of, a, it was a Renaissance fair in this piazza. And it was a bareback horseback race of, of all the neighborhoods in Siena competing. And it happens twice a summer. And it's just a, like such a cultural experience. Or the New Orleans you know, Jazz and Heritage Fest, which is just stunning in its own way. Uh, so I what I loved about this experience was it helped me to see how important collective effervescence is. So Emil Durkheim is a sociologist who pulcher studied religious, man. yeah, studied religious pilgrimages long ago. Uh, again, there's a lot, I'll, I'll, you know, Van Genep, Durkheim, a lot of things I'm talking about all happened around 1910 Um, and Durkheim basically said that what he saw in a religious pilgrimage was the following is that people's sense of ego separation started to dissolve and what instead came in its place was a sense of um, collective effervescence or communal joy and so that was that 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 phrase collective effervescence was sort of my guiding light I wanted to go around the world and experience collective effervescence in, in festival environments. And ultimately, interestingly enough, I took that experience and I, I, I basically went to Airbnb during the, sec- during the second half of basically starting April 2013. So about half of my sojourn doing this was while I was at, working at Airbnb, which was nuts. Wow. Uh, Because I just I had a commitment to myself. I'm going to do this, and I said to Brian, "Listen, you know, you have to like accept that I'm I'm going to do this." But what it allowed me to do ultimately is take all that knowledge and then apply it to Airbnb, where we for three years created something called the Airbnb Open, which was a festival of hospitality. And the last one of it, you know, it was in San Francisco, and then in Paris, and then in L.A. downtown L.A. and the one in L.A. had twenty thousand people from 110 countries. It was like nuts, but it was not a conference it was a festival and it was collective effervescence and so i think it you know anybody who wants to throw a good party uh learn a thing about that also there's a great book by priya parker called the art of gathering it's a Mm. it's a quite a good book on the subject of uh yeah on the subject of how do you how can you be a social alchemist to create an environment where collective effervescence can occur
0: beautifully said uh if there was one festival aside from burning man that probably not a lot of people have on their radar that you think would be amazing to check out (laughs) and it doesn't have to be your favorite but like is there one because you just mentioned a few and i feel like you've got in that brain probably some epic i'm always looking for like what's like an ecstatic experience i've never even thought about like is there a festival that you'd recommend
1: well So, for what per, it depends, so there's a point at which I was, I was approached to become the festival doctor, it was going to be a reality TV show. And oh, wow. my job was to ask questions to understand what it is that you're needing, and then I can recommend the festival. So, I would have to do that. So, it's hard to say, okay, what it, it depends on what you're actually looking for, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you one that's a weird festival because I okay. just like, okay, it's just so, it's so damn weird that it, it's worth mentioning because you never heard of it. It's called El Calacho, C O L A C H O. You'll see some YouTube videos, some of them by me. Um, it is a festival that's, that's been going. It's pagan Catholic festival, which generally are the best festivals for festivity because, like Carnival, what, it was a Catholic festival. It was a Christian festival that actually went pagan. Um, so this is a this is a festival though. The the pagans and the Catholics are all conspiring in this tiny little. Village in northeastern Spain, wow. where they put mattresses on the ground in this tiny village of 500 people, um, and they're spaced out about 100 yards from each uh, each other in these little winding streets. There are these two guys get dressed up like devils. Uh, El Calacho, I think, means the devil, and so they're dressed like devils, and throughout. The next 12 hours of the festival from about you know, 8 in the morning till about 8 in the evening or 9 in the morning till 9 in the evening, they're drinking alcohol. And all of the townspeople from about 40-kilometer radius bring their babies that are 1-year-old or younger, and they place the babies on the mattresses. And the drunk devils jump the long way over the mattress and hopefully what? make it. Yes. Yes, and there are bagpipers, Scottish bagpipers, along the way, and there's the priest with with um, with the incense going, and then everybody ends up in the church for for a little while, and then they come back outside and drink more. It is so Fellini esque. What? <laughs> it's it's so nutty, and it's um, so El Calacho. It's near the town of Burgos in Spain, and and that's the, that's what the name of the village. I can't remember the name of the village. But you know, I can, what I can say is that um yes, I had that experience. Thirty-six festivals, twenty countries. Um I did the running of the bowls. I mean I I should I absolutely you know what? Okay, it's time to write the right, I I gotta write that book.
0: You you really do. That book needs to be written. Okay <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, what to talk about like the embodiment of a new sabbatical. I mean, I feel yeah. like doing doing Plus thirty festivals. Oh my
1: God! I need to write that book.
0: Hundred percent. I hope that that is born, born, uh, and, and, yes. and that I can read it. And, yes, uh, yes. Because, <laughs> because it's interesting. You talk. I hopefully, no babies were hurt in that uh, that that festival. But uh, no, I
1: didn't see any. No. Okay,
0: good, good. No, but it's that's fast. And that's actually in Sri Lanka. That's actually what we, in a very short articulation, exactly what happens. So the ritual the tradition,
1: elephants, the elephants with all the all adornment artist
0: procession in all of asia
1: i want to go that that (laughs) so badly it's up 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 in the mountains right yeah yeah
0: in candy where i lived
1: candy so listen dude i like i know this stuff and i love it oh my god i wanted to see that i will
0: connect you chip to the best experience if you go to the Parahara. okay Okay. um anyway so anyway for but yes i love that you did that um Okay. So I want to be mindful of your time. I'm super excited. I can't wait to uh, hopefully have you back on when you write this book about the festivals. Um, But um, to sort of bring it into kind of um, start to bring it towards a close. um, I'm just so honored, first of all, by the wisdom that you're sharing. Um, uh, uh, There's a couple ways to frame this. I mean, obviously we've all heard the question, you know, what advice would you give to your sort of 20 year old self? But given the fact that you brought up kind of a, a key phase in life that I'm actually about to enter into, and I know actually several of our listeners are in that phase. If you were to look back and sort of counsel, because I know one of the things I loved about the way that you you talk about being an elder is it's both the wisdom, but also the intern, like sort of the curiosity Mm -hmm. of of approaching. But what would be, and you can use me as an example, doesn't have to be me, Mm -hmm. but like, what would be some of your sage counsel, if you will, around how to approach the next decade um you it's it's something that you know it's like okay well if 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 many people approach this you know, challenging phase in life. You know, I've heard many people talk, for example, about late twenties as the Saturn returns. And, mm-hmm. you know, here's how to prepare for that existential angst. Yeah. I haven't heard many people talk about how do you prepare for, say, for example, mid forties? What would be, I, I definitely get the editing and, and yeah. sort of the, the process that you shared earlier, but is there any way in which you would think about the mindset that you would come into over the next 10 years uh, that would really position someone well for that, for that phase of life?
1: I think the number one thing to to recognize about that phase of life is that you are in the middle of the marathon, you know? mm-hmm. so, so um, especially around 50, you're, you're sort of in the middle of the marathon uh, and um, you better let go of some of the baggage mm-hmm. and, and which leads to why you need to evolve edit, and ask questions about, you know, what isn't serving you anymore. But I think if you can sort of cut yourself some slack Hmm. And understand that what you're going through, you're going through transitions at that age, everything from menopause or andropause to empty nest syndrome, having the kids go away, to divorce, to, to being in the sandwich generation, taking care of your parents who may are gonna pass away soon, as well as taking care of your kids, hmm. career change, um, you know, a uh you know, a health diagnosis. You get start getting more health diagnoses at that age where, you know, that are a little bit worrisome. Um, so it's not all bad stuff, you know. But it but it is definitely a pileup, um, or what Bruce Feiler in his book Life Is in the Transitions calls a lifequake. Mm. You have a series of life quakes that are going on at that time. That's normal. <laughs> Hate to tell you, it's normal. But it's not. It's and it's totally um, manageable. Mm. But don't do it alone.
0: Don't do it alone. Don't,
1: don't do it alone. That, that was, that's my, that's, that's the punchline.
0: Yeah. I love that. Um, I want to hear more uh, before we close about how people can find out more about modern elder Academy, but before we go into mm-hmm. there, I wanted to ask you, you're, 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 sitting conspicuously in front of a fair number of, uh, of books. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling you, well, well, one, you've written some profound books yourself, but I have a feeling you've read some, some great ones. Mm-hmm. Are there, what, give me two or three books that you think uh, anyone listening would benefit from reading?
1: Um, okay.
0: He's, by the way, for those listening, he actually just got up from his desk and is actually literally going to pick them up off of the bookshelf. So I'm, um, gonna,
1: I'm going straight to
0: the bookshelf. He's going um, right to the bookshelf.
1: Uh, here's one, Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing mm. by Barry Schwartz. And it's, it's really just sort of like practical philosophy. Mm. Um not a bad book. Uh you know my favorite book I'm, I can't find it here right now is Man's Search for Meaning, uh Victor Frankl's book and I just find that that is the ultimate way to understand how character can overrun uh, or trump circumstances. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's especially poignant for our time. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's, with a, a variety of folks struggling. It really goes to show you what you can do. I mean, he, in the most extreme circumstance, obviously, yeah, given he yeah. was in Auschwitz, but um, beautifully said. Well, well, Chip, where can people uh, who are listening find out more, both about you and your work, and yeah. and, and, and as well as Modern Elder Academy?
1: So they can. Uh, there's a ChipConley.com website. C-O-N-L-E-Y. You can find things there. But the Modern Elder Academy website's got even a lot more information. So that's modernelderacademy.com or uh, or .org. Um, I I do a daily uh, blog. Uh, It's called Wisdom Well. It's on the Modern Elder Academy website. Um, So uh, if you find any of this interesting, I I write about collective effervescence and all all kinds of stuff um, there. Uh, And uh, and then LinkedIn is probably where i 'm most active in terms of I post a lot of articles there, and a lot of my daily um, uh, blogs go there as well so yeah
0: I love that boys. i I want to take a moment to just acknowledge you, chip, because for me you know i 've known you you know we 've met a couple of times but i've i've i 've been kind of tracking your journey and to go from the founder of joe de vivre and all of what that embodies and then to shift and to go to, you know, 30 plus festivals around the, uh, <laughs> around the world. And to do that in such a way that you could share that insight and apply it then to Airbnb. And then now to, to, to move into modern elder, to me, you are embodying the graceful pivot. You are embodying <laughs> the, the li- the listening to, I think, you know, both yourself clearly, but also mm-hmm. I think what is the great need? Uh, and mm-hmm. I feel like all of us is, uh, realize that contribution is the key to fulfillment. And if we can find where our great, you know, passion meets the, the, the great needs of, of the collective, I think we're, we're doing something right. And I feel like there's so much need for uh, this work, uh, as, especially right. as it relates to how we age gracefully and uh, yeah. you're embodying doing it exceptionally well. So I, I thank you for your work and, uh, look forward to, uh, to a future conversation down the road. Uh, Chip Conley, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. It's been great. Pleasure. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with the one and only Chip Conley. Uh, I know that I did. If you did enjoy it, let us know your feedback. You can hit us up at, at Michael Trainer and at Chip Conley on Instagram. Let us know any questions, any thoughts, uh, your favorite part of the episode. If you have a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes, I greatly appreciate it. It helps me get incredible guests as well as to grow this community. I'm so, so grateful for you guys. Uh, please feel free to miss me anytime. I reply to all my messages. And I'm so, so grateful for you listening. Please go out there and live your inspired life.